Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, January 5th, 2023. What a great pleasure to be with you all tonight. I have been looking forward to this all week and I am so honored that you have decided to spend some time that we can learn together tonight. Thank you very much for that. Our Torah portion this week, the Parsha Vayechi, which ends the book of Bereshis, the first of the five books of the Torah, Genesis, centers on a very human scene. It's the end of Yaakov's life. And he is surrounded by his family. And he shares with each member of his family his last words. His last words about their potential, their role in the future of the family. And I think we all hope for that. That at the end of our lives, that we'll be fully present, fully conscious, aware, able to formulate and articulate and share our legacy with our family, our last instructions, our last lessons. And we read in the Torah, the Shabbos, Vayichal, Yaakov Litzavos Esbanov, Yaakov concluded his instructions to his children, Vayeyosef Ragla Velhamita. And Yaakov died and was gathered to his people. My grandfather used to say that the obligation for parents to instruct their children continues during the entire life of the children up to the very last breath of the parent. Vayechal, at the moment that Yaakov completed instructing his children, that was the moment by Yosef, and he was gathered to his people, he died. It's a sad scene, but it's also quite beautiful. Certainly it is not tragic. There is nothing left unsaid, no unfinished business. Modern medicine has added years to our lives. Ironically, sometimes it increases the tragedy at the end of our lives. Fewer people today die like Yaakov did at the end of a productive and profound life, able to express ourselves momentously with our last breaths. And the scene begins, This is near the beginning of our parsha Vayechi. And it was after the events recorded before. Yosef was told, Your father is sick. And when ya Yosef hears this, he goes to visit him. That's when Yaakov gives Yosef his final instructions. 
And that's followed by the final instructions to the rest of the sons. These words set up the first death scene in the Torah. And this scene sets the standard for how much of a blessing a death scene can be. It's sad. The sons mourn and cry when their father passes away. But again, it's not tragic. There's no unfinished business. And according to the Talmud, it never happened before. And it was intentional. Listen, please, carefully to a remarkable passage in the Gemara. The Talmud says, Ad Yaakov, from the creation of the world until the time of Yaakov, no one ever got sick. Now the commentators explain, yes, you could get the cold, you could get the flu, you could get an illness, and you would recover. There was sickness, but not sickness that ended life. Yes, not all life ended naturally. There were murders, there were accidents, people died, but in those cases where a person died, in quotation marks, of natural causes, there was no such thing as getting sick first. There was no illness before. Asa Yaakov, Yaakov came along, and Bo'erachame, he asked God to have compassion, to have mercy on human beings, and God answering Yaakov's prayer allowed Yaakov to get sick before he died. It's incredible. Imagine that. Number one, that before Yaakov's time, people did not get sick before they died. And number two, that Yaakov asked for it. What happened before? So our rabbis say that before a person would come to the end of their life, to the end of the natural span that God had intended for a person, and a person would sneeze and expire. That's it. That, of course, is the origin of the practice that we have, that when a person sneezes, we say, Gesundheit, or Labriyut, because according to this line in the Talmud, in ancient times, a person sneezing could be an indication, that's it, life is over, God forbid. Okay, so we say Gesundheit, even though it no longer applies, because now, because of Yaakov, most people, most people, if they die of natural causes, do get sick, have some kind of illness before they pass away, some shorter, some longer, some more difficult, some less difficult. But why would Yaakov ask for that? Why would that be a request that Yaakov would ask for mercy in this manner? So listen, please, to the answer given by Rabbi Avram Pam. Rabbi Pam says as follows, 
Lemanyia lopnai litzavos bonov ubeso acharov. A person would get sick, Yaakov requested, near the end of their life, so that it would be a signal. Time is coming to an end. It's the time to take the opportunity to instruct your family. Haim bin yani mimono, whether it refers to financial matters, who will inherit, how they will inherit, Haim bin Yani Musar, whether it applies to character issues of advice that you want to give to each member of your family, and also to have the opportunity to bless each member of your family before you pass away. If a person would just die suddenly, they would not have known that the time was coming and they may not have made these kind of preparations. They may not have said these last words. So therefore, it's a kindness that God gives us this opportunity so that we know we have to prepare. And in doing so, we are able to reduce the tragedy of our passing, not the sadness, but to be able to finish up any unfinished business. Illness near the end of life can be an opportunity. It can even be a blessing if we use it properly. It is not within our control that our end should be like that of Yaakov, surrounded by our family at the end of a long life, able to express ourselves as he did. It's not within our control. But we can live our lives in such a way as to reduce unfinished business. There is a custom, an ancient custom among the Jewish people, that when a person reaches the age of 50 years old, they should purchase burial plots. It's the right thing to make arrangements in advance. And, of course, if we're going to make those arrangements, we should share them with our family, especially our children. And doing so will help reduce the chaos when the moment comes because people know what's supposed to happen. And if we share those instructions that are important to us, and also especially today, to share instructions with our family of what type of medical care we want, of course, in accordance with Jewish law, in a case of a situation where we're not able to make those decisions ourselves. And it's tremendously important that people should think about these issues, should formulate their, their, their plans, and share them with their family so that it's open, it's transparent, everyone knows. And it is important that we arrange our finances. Again, in accordance with Jewish law, but especially in a way to try to minimize controversy 
after we have passed away. If a person is facing this, it's a very good idea to write something. And this is a tradition going back many centuries among the Jewish people to write not only a financial will, but a moral will, a spiritual will. What lesson, what message do you want your family to have, each of your children to have? And this is not a morbid topic. It's not about death. It's about life. And it can improve and deepen the quality of the time that we have. If we live with the awareness that it will not last forever. In the words of Mario de Andrade, we have two lives. And the second one starts when you realize you only have one. So after the death of Yaakov, Yosef's brothers are very frightened. Years earlier, when they had come to Egypt seeking food, and finally, after all the machinations that we read about in the Torah, Yosef reveals himself. The brothers apologize to Yosef for what they had done to him, the terrible things that they had done to him. And Yosef forgave them. He appeared to to forgive them. But we see in our Torah portion that the brothers are not completely at ease. They're not completely reassured. Maybe Yosef didn't really mean it. Maybe he still resented what the brothers had done to him all those years ago. Maybe the only reason he had taken no revenge is because Yaakov was still alive. And once Yaakov passes away, maybe now Yosef feels free to exact punishment, to seek revenge, to hold them accountable for what they did all those years ago. And so with that fear, the brothers come to Yosef after Yaakov has died. And they say as follows. They say, When Yosef and his brothers return from having buried their father and they come back to Egypt, The brothers of Yosef were afraid because their father had passed away and they said, Maybe he is now going to hold us accountable, punish us. By Yitzavu el Yosef Lamor. And so the brothers say to Yosef the following words. They say, Avichatsiva, your father, right? It's our father, Yaakov, but your father commanded 
Livnei before he died, your father told us to tell you, Kosom Ruli Yosef, this is what I want you to say to Yosef after I die. The brothers quote their father. Forgive your brothers for what they did to you. Don't harbor a grudge. Don't punish them. Forgive them. Let it go. By Yefk Yosef Badabrame love, and Yosef cried when he heard these words. Now, the text of the Torah seems clear that the story the brothers are telling Yosef is a lie. It's not true. Nowhere does Yaakov say these words to the other brothers, after I die, tell Yosef that he should forgive you. Even on his deathbed, as he instructs Yosef to carry out his last wishes, Yaakov does not say to Yosef, and I want you to forgive your brothers. Nowhere in the Torah is that, is that mentioned. There's not a word of such a comment coming from Yaakov. There's not even a hint of what the brothers quote in their father's name. So what's going on? Let's explore two possibilities. First possibility, Yaakov did say these words, though they are not recorded directly in the Torah. Obviously, we all understand not every word that Yaakov spoke in his life is known to us from the text of the Torah. I mean, you know, Yaakov said good morning, he said uh, pass me the, bring me a glass of water. I mean, he said lots of things in his life. Not every word was quoted. When the brothers are saying, this is what Yosef, Yaakov told us to say to you after he died, he had said that to them. And Yaakov had good reason to say this to the brothers because he knew everything that the brothers had done to Yosef. They had plotted to kill him they sold him into slavery. They caused him years of abuse and trauma. And just as Yaakov's brother, remember back a few Torah portions ago, Esau threatened to kill his brother Yaakov after their father passed away. Yaakov was worried that Yosef especially with all of his might and power as second in command in Egypt, he might decide after Yaakov died to even the score with his brothers. Now Yaakov did not say this to Yosef because any promise that Yaakov extracts from Yosef directly loses its power once Yaakov dies. So Yaakov tells the brothers to repeat these words to Yosef in Yaakov's name after Yaakov dies so that Yaakov can, so to speak, reach beyond the grave and convince Yosef to forgive his brothers. And apparently it worked. Yosef cried on hearing his father's words. 
and there was peace. That's one possibility. The second approach disagrees. The brothers lied. And logically, had Yaakov really said these words and, and, and felt the need to say these words, he would have said it to Yosef himself. The brothers lied. But their lie is what sometimes we might refer to as a white lie. Because their aim was not to deceive, but to ease a potentially explosive situation. Maybe that's why Yaakov cried. I'm sorry, maybe that's why Yosef cried when he heard the brothers say this, because he understood that the brothers still thought that he was capable of revenge. And our sages derive from this a principle, Mishanem Ibne Hashalom. A person is allowed to say a white lie, to say something that is untrue for the sake of peace. Now, of course, only in certain limited circumstances, only in certain situations. It depends what's at stake. But in order to preserve peace, it is sometimes permitted to say something that is not accurate, that is not truthful. Not only does, do the brothers do this, God himself does this in the Torah. Earlier in the Torah, you remember, our sages point this out. The angels come to visit Avraham. And they say to him, Avram, you, are, you and Sarah, you are going to have a child. Avram was 99 years old, 98 years old. Sarah was listening from the tent. And the Torah tells us, Vatitzchak Sarah, Sarah heard the angel promise that they would have a child. And Sarah laughed. And she said to herself, I am so old and my husband is so old and you're telling me we're going to have a child? And she laughed. And then God says to Avram, listen carefully, God says to Avram, why did Sarah laugh and say, is it possible for me, Sarah, to have a child because I am so old? <laughs> you see the editing. When God repeats what Sarah said to Avraham, he doesn't repeat the whole line. He leaves out the part because Sarah said, I'm old and my husband is old. <laughs> when God tells Avraham, why is she laughing? He only repeats the part where Sarah said about herself that she was old. People don't like it when you call them old. But our sages point out, God did not mention that Sarah had actually said that Avram was also too old to have a child because he did not want there to be bad feelings between husband and wife. Shalom bias, harmony within the home. Meshanim ibnea shalom. Even God can misreport a conversation if it is intended to maintain peace between husband and wife. 
Another example that many of us are familiar with, well, maybe many of us are familiar with, but we might not remember the context. The Talmud asks the following question. Literally, that means, how do we dance in order to gladden a bride at her wedding? But our sages understand that that's a metaphor. Of course, yes, we do dance in front of the bride and groom at a wedding to gladden and bring joy. But our sages understand the question really is, how does a person appropriately give honor and pay compliment to a groom about his bride? What do you say to a groom about his bride? There are brides that have certain characteristics, but not others. How do you praise a bride to her groom? And the Talmud answers, according to Beis Hillel, the rest of the song, Ketzad Maraktin Livnea Kala, Kala Na The bride is beautiful and lovely. Well, I mean, I don't want to be indelicate, but uh, what happens if the bride is not beautiful? I mean, of course, she could have other characteristics, but how do you say the words, Kala na'a she's beautiful and graceful, if in fact she's not? Base Hill explains, who's to judge? There's no objective criteria of beauty and grace and charm. Certainly the groom feels that his bride is beautiful. It's not an empirical statement. It is rather a way to celebrate the couple's happiness. And so we say something, even if in some empirical objective uh, uh, standard, whatever, however you're going to decide that, it may not be objectively true. We say it because it is within the context of celebrating the couple's happiness. And we all understand this. We all understand. Do you like my tie? I'm not wearing a tie, so I can ask the question. Do you like? Sure, I love your tie. It's beautiful. I love it. How was the soup? Soup was delicious. Now, obviously, it depends on the context. It depends on the situation. If you happen to be a restaurant critic, if someone is testing out a recipe and they are asking you for a serious opinion and they really want to know, of course, <laughs> there are many situations where a person will say to you, no, 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 I really want to know what you think. Then you're in big trouble. Because you have to figure out if... I really want to know means I really want to know <laughs> or it means something else. Okay, again, the context can be very uh, subtle and, and sometimes hard to figure out. And of course, there are limits when someone is depending on the veracity of your words. If you're testifying in a, ca in a court case, 
If you're explaining some aspect of Torah, to misrepresent the Torah is a terrible sin. If you're asked to give a reference about someone's character for some position that they are going to have and you know information that is relevant, you are required to say the absolute truth. You're not allowed to mistake something. That's not Mishanim Ibn Ashalam. In particular, I must mention what is one of the critical issues in our time. Tremendous damage is done when a relevant flaw is not revealed to a potential spouse. Our community, the wider Jewish community, is suffering from an epidemic, a dramatic increase in marriages just after the wedding. I mean weeks or a couple of months after the wedding, something unheard of in former times. The number of those cases is skyrocketing, and often it's because there was some clear flaw that makes a person not possible to live with, but it was hidden, and people kept secrets, and they didn't tell the truth, and doing that causes enormous, deep, and long-lasting pain and difficulty and should never be done. That is when we are required to tell the truth. And yes, there are guidelines from the Chavetz Chaim. We've discussed them before. What to say, when to say it, how to say it. If you have a question, let's discuss it. We'll talk about it. So it depends on the context. It depends on what's at stake. But Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes, the brothers were not wrong to tell Yosef a white lie for the sake of peace within the family because it reminded them all of a deeper truth that not only their human father, Yaakov, who has now died, but also their heavenly father, God, who is eternally alive and watching, wants his people to be at peace. Now, this second approach of Mishanem Ibn HaShalom, that Yaakov did not say those words, but the brothers made them up in order to have a peaceful outcome, this carries with it another profound found implication. Yaakov did not tell the brothers what they quoted in his name because Yaakov, till his very last breath, never knew what they had done to Yosef. The brothers certainly never expected their crime would be exposed for them at that time in that society. Selling Yosef as a, a slave to Egypt was as permanent a disappearance as if they had killed him. That's understandable, that they would never say anything. But the truly incredible part is that Yosef also never told 
his father what the brothers had done to him. Never told his father everything that had happened to lead to how Yosef became the second most powerful person in Egypt. Let's review that poignant scene. It was in the Parsha Vayigash two weeks ago. I'm sorry. Last week. Vayigash. The brothers know that Yosef is alive. Yosef reveals himself. Yosef says, go back to Yaakov and bring Yaakov and the family here. Goshen. Yaakov and his family travel down to Egypt and they reach the land of Goshen in Egypt. Vayesar Yosef Merkavto Vayaal Likras Yisrael Aviv Goshna Yosef harnesses his chariot and he travels to greet his father Yaakov in Goshen. This is the scene that everyone has been waiting for for more than 20 years. Vayera Elav and he appeared before him. Vayipol al Tzavarav and he fell upon his neck. Vayefk al Tzavarav od and he cried, leaning on his neck. And he cried some more. Vayomer Yisrael el Yosef and Yaakov says to Yosef, seeing his son for the first time in many years, thinking all these years that he had been dead, killed. Amusa hapam. Now I can die a satisfied man. Now that I see you again and I see that you're alive. Imagine this beautiful, emotional scene. But what's missing? What is not in this scene? Yaakov meets Yosef after 22 years absence, 22 years of Yaakov mourning and worrying and not knowing. And they live together after they are reunited for another 17 years until Yaakov dies, says the Ramban, Yaakov never found out what the brothers did to Yosef. Notice, what's missing from this dramatic scene? What, what is missing from this dramatic reunion of Yaakov and Yosef? There are no questions. Yaakov doesn't ask what happened. Where were you all this time? How did you get here? And Yosef does not volunteer those details. And this is a deep lesson that both Yaakov and Yosef are teaching us. They did not dwell on the past. They were able to let it go. Their only concern when they were finally reunited was... Mikan ve'elach. Let's go forward.
let's move forward. Let's move past this. Whatever happened in the past is irrelevant. They both understood that they needed each of them to be a new person now going forward. Now, of course, we should never say this to a person who is suffering through a trauma, let it go. person has to work on it. person may need professional help until the time that they are ready, and maybe they will never be ready for this. And, of course, in order to move forward, sometimes you have to look back. There must be teshuva, repentance. One must ask for and be granted forgiveness. We have to look back in order to learn lessons about what happened. Of course. But this had happened in our case. The brothers had apologized to Yosef in the Torah portion before. They did teshuva, they repented, they became different people, better people. And they demonstrated that in how they protected their youngest brother, Binyamin. We discussed that last week. But once you've done all that, once you've done everything that is constructive to do, then you need to move forward. It serves no purpose to live with the pain of the past. This is one of the most difficult accomplishments in all of emotional life. And it is also one of the most helpful and healing and liberating if we are able to achieve it. To not be mired and stuck in the hate and guilt and shame and anger. In this dramatic reunion of Yaakov and Yosef, there is not a single question. Yosef didn't tell Yaakov what happened because the brothers were sincere in their repentance and they asked forgiveness and he sincerely forgave them. Telling Yaakov at this point would simply be the Shon Hara. It would serve no constructive purpose. Yaakov didn't ask because it didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was moving forward, letting go, being a new person unburdened by the pain and hurt of the past. And that lesson is applicable, applicable to every single one of us, and that comes from a subtlety by implication from assuming that the brothers fabricated, for good reason, the words they tell Yosef their father spoke just before he died. Because peace and harmony and moving forward are the primary values God wants us to have. Allow me to share with you one last piece tonight. 
And what I want to share with you now is partially based on an essay by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. If you want to understand a book, any book, look carefully at how it ends. The book of Beratius, the first of the five books of Moses, the Chumash, ends in our Parsha with three significant scenes. Scene number one, Yaakov blesses his grandsons, Ephraim and Menashe, Yosef's sons. The blessing that Yaakov uses is the blessing that many parents bestow upon their children every Friday night, Shabbos night. And the question is obvious of all the blessings to give our children, why do we choose the blessing that Yaakov gave to Ephraim and to Menashe and not some other blessing? And I have shared with you before a number of answers to this question. But Rabbi Lord Jacobovitz offers the following answer. He says, it is the only blessing in the entire Torah that a grandfather gives to a grandchild. Every other blessing is from a father to a child. The relationship between a parent and a child, there can be tension at times. But the relationship between a grandparent and a grandchild, there's no tension, only love. Nothing else. That relationship is a special and unique relationship. And it is that unconditional, uncomplicated relationship that we invoke when we give a blessing to our children on Friday night. That's scene number one. Scene number two. Yaakov blesses his sons. Here there is recognizable tension. To the first three sons, Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi, the words that Yaakov say seem more like a curse than a blessing. And yet, the fact is, he is blessing all of them together. We discussed this this morning. At the same time, this is something that we have not seen before. There is no record in the Torah that Avraham blessed either Yishmael or Yitzchak. Yitzchak does bless Esav and Yaakov, but not at the same time. The mere fact that Yaakov is able to gather his sons together and to bless them all together at one time, that is unprecedented. It has not happened in the Torah before. Now, in the next chapter, because this week's Torah portion concludes the first book of the Torah, Beratius, the next parsha begins the second book of the Torah, the book of Shmos of Exodus. In the next chapter, we meet the Jewish people, Am Yisrael. And the lesson is clear. It is only once they are able to live together as a family that they can then grow and develop to live together as a people. The third scene. After Yaakov dies, the brothers ask Yosef 
to forgive them, as we just discussed. <coughs> Remember, Yosef had already done this. Yosef had said, I forgive you earlier. But evidently, the brothers still harbor the suspicion that <coughs> maybe it was an insincere acceptance of their apology. Maybe, as I said before, the brothers, Yosef was simply waiting until Yaakov passed away. And Yosef speaks directly to them and he says to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. I harbor no ill will. And with these three scenes, the book of Beratius ends. And what the Torah is telling us, suggests Rabbi Sachs, is that family comes before everything. It comes before the nation. It comes before the pursuit of power. It comes before the accumulation of wealth. From an external point of view, if you look at these events, the impressive story would be Yosef reaches the heights of power in Egypt such that when Yosef's father dies, all of Egypt mourns and there is this great funeral and everyone is watching who is this great person that passed away. But when we turn the page and we start next week's Torah portion, the beginning of Shemos, we see that whatever greatness Yosef and, and respect Yosef commanded, whatever position the Jewish people had in Egypt as the family of Yosef, it was very vulnerable. It would dissipate it quite quickly. And they are reduced by the very next chapter to slavery. Beratius is not about creation of power. It's about families. Because that's where life together begins. Now, the Torah does not imply by any means that it's easy to create and sustain a family. First, the patriarchs and the matriarchs, especially Sarah and Rivka and Rachel, know the agony of infertility. They know what it is to wait and to hope and to wait again and to be frustrated. Sibling rivalry is a repeated theme throughout the book. Rabbi Sachs says, you know, the famous Pasuk in Tehillim, how beautiful and good it is for brothers and sisters to live together in peace. The, the, the line could have added, and how rare. Very beginning, Cain murders his brother Hevel. Tension between Sarah and Hagar caused Hagar and her son Yishmael to be sent out from the home. Rivalry between Yaakov and Esav. Rivalry between Yosef and his brothers that comes in both of those cases close to murder. And yet, and yet, this does not minimize the significance of the family as an institution. To the contrary, 
the family is the main vehicle of blessing. The Torah is telling us with great honesty that families are challenging. The relationship between husband and wife, between parent and child, is rarely straightforward, fraught with tension and complexity. But we have to work at it. There is no guarantee that we'll get it right. It is by no means clear that the parents in Bereshis are doing it properly. In the words of James Q. Wilson, the family is an arena in which conflicts occur and must be managed. People within the family love and quarrel, share and sulk, please and disappoint. Families are the world in which we shape and manage our emotions. So the book of Horatius is not some kind of hymn to the virtue of families. It is a candid, honest, work-through account of what it is to confront some of the main problems within families, even the best families. Beratius ends with these three scenes that convey three fundamental resolutions. Number one, Grandparents are intrinsic and valuable part of a family and their blessing is important. Number two, Yaakov shows us that it is possible to bless every one of your children even if you have a fractured relationship with some of them. And number three, Yosef shows us that it is possible to forgive your siblings even if they have done you great, great harm. Concludes Rabbi Sachs, that is what Beratius is about. It's not about the creation of the world. That occupies only the first chapter. It's about how to handle family conflict. As soon as Avraham's descendants can create strong families, they can move from Beratius to Shemos and our birth as a nation that we will begin to see next week. My friends, I want to wish you a beautiful evening and a great Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.